Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Hi, everybody. We're glad you're with us this morning. My name is Mike. Welcome. Uh, Grab a Bible. We're going to the book of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 64. Um, I'm really glad you're here. We got a couple of things to let you know about. Tim mentioned uh, next week, right after this service, we're doing the Next Step Lunch, and we highly encourage you uh, to come and find out more about us. There are so many great uh, churches in South Orange County. Uh, We just want to let you know a little bit about us so that you can decide if this is where God has you or not, because the goal really is to find a place and make it home and get heavily invested in there for the long term. And even though we meet in uh, movie theater seats that just shout, be passive, we want to build a community uh, that is anything but that. So we're glad that you're here, and we encourage you to come to that. Also, next uh, Sunday, Kenton and I are going to do uh, a Q&A here at 4 o'clock. We're going to provide child care. We've been in this series called Jesus Hates Religion, and it's raised just a lot of really interesting questions, um, not the least of which is, well, hold on, I thought he founded a religion, and how does all, all that work, and don't all religions lead to the same God and, and all of those sorts of really big questions. And what we thought we'd do is we're ending this series next week, but uh, because monologue isn't always the best way to communicate the most important stuff, we thought, hey, it'd be fun to just come and have a discussion. And so it's going to be low-key, informal, we'll take care of your kids, uh, but you've got to come and bring questions. And uh, we invite you to do that next Sunday at 4. Today, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to talk about why Jesus hates religion And we're going to look at it through the lens of the difference between a contract and a covenant. Uh, Contract language is language we're all familiar with. Covenant language is biblical language, but we're not as familiar with it as we are with contract language. Contracts, if you've ever signed a credit card receipt, that's a contract. You're promising to pay the money to the credit card company who has advanced the money to wherever you're spending uh, the money in your credit card. Um, we, uh, we sign rental agreements. We sign employee-employer contracts. We're very familiar with contracts because they're quid pro quo. They're, I do something and you're obligated to provide something in return. I give money, I get this gift or service or item. We are very, very familiar with contract language. Um, if you've ever bought a home, you're very familiar with contract language. Con- contracts are deals between two parties, and in a sense, they're good because they hold us accountable, they promote integrity in a fallen world. Contracts aren't necessarily bad things until they come to religion. And the vast majority of religious systems in the world are contractual in nature, meaning I do something so I get blessing from God or gods or goddesses or it or whoever. You can spell this out a thousand different ways. But the idea in religious thinking is that if I'm good, then what happens? I get blessed. If, I mean, the ultimate sense is if I'm good, I get to go to heaven, right? God owes me heaven if I'm, if I'm good. Or even in Christian circles, you hear about, you hear contract thinking, formula thinking all the time. If I give money to God, what's his job? Take care of me, right? Or, or uh, if I pray for my kids every night, his job is to make them turn out okay. If I um, am pure before marriage, his job is to give me a great sex life once I'm married. Um, at least that was the one I thought, uh, hypothetically, uh, when I was a single guy. Um, uh, there, contract thinking is 
I do something and the other party is obligated to do something in return. And ultimately, this is religious thinking. We want to reduce it down to formulas. We want to reduce it down to equations. Uh, Simple, easy to understand, and controllable, right? I do this, God must do that. In contrast to contract thinking, God speaks all the time in terms of covenant language. It's not a deal between two people. It's two parties pledging themselves to each other regardless of what the other person does. The closest thing we have to that, of course, is marriage. And although marriage today in America is often contractual, even though we don't say it is, um, the idea for it, biblically, was to be covenantal. That literally you look at somebody and say, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, I pledge myself to you. That's covenant language. Covenant language is based on love. Contractual language is based on law. Covenant language is based on accepting the other person. Contract language is based on evaluating the terms of the contract to make sure they're being met. Covenant language uh, is about gratitude and, and acceptance. Contract language is about being entitled to what's owed you because you've put in your part. And so what we want to do is beat up a little bit on contract because that's where we're most at home. That's the easiest part to understand. If I do this, then God does this. We want to beat up on that and then show up the difference because what Jesus does when he talks about a new covenant that's written in his blood is something that is so incredibly profound that if we understood it, we'd abandon the contractual way of thinking at all. So uh, if you have children under the age of 13, I'm going to use two words that are not appropriate for them. You will cover their ears or they will cover their ears, but I'm going to use them because the Bible uses them. Take that. Isaiah chapter 64 i got to get there. Isaiah 64. Now, when the Bible talks about righteousness, righteousness means alignment to the purposes of God. And there's good righteousness that we're called to have. We're called to do good in the world. We're called to reflect God's glory and His character. But then there's the kind of righteousness that thinks that we can earn our way into God's acceptance. We can earn our way into uh, having the right to worship. And the prophet condemns this second kind of righteousness that thinks that somehow God owes us when we're good enough. And he says this, Isaiah 64, verse 6, and I'll tell you when to plug the ears of your children. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like, what's your Bible say? Filthy rags. Now, filthy rags isn't the best translation of this. Plug the ears of the children at this point. Are you ready? The the proper translation is menstrual rags. That's the image we get. Uh, You can see why I'm having you cover the ears of your children. Maybe you're wanting to cover your own ears too. The image, the, the NIV, we should call in this instance the neutered international version because... It takes, I mean, you couldn't get a more unclean image in Jewish culture than that, right? They didn't have feminine hygiene products you could buy at the store, and so you would use rags, and those used rags, the prophet points to, to say, our attempts at earning, proving, and striving in contractual terms, that's what they come across like to God. Like, they're just 
that disgusting to him. Not our goodness that flows from gratitude or not our goodness that flows from his work in us, but our meager attempts to earn and prove and justify ourselves. That's one of the image, images that's given. Go, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. There's another one that's even worse, if you can believe that. Philippians chapter 3. One of the things I really like about the Bible uh, is that even though you don't always get it in English, it's very honest and very real and very true to life. And uh, much of the New Testament was written from a man named Paul. Paul, if there was anybody ever that fulfilled a contract with God that said, if I'm righteous, you'll bless me. If there's anybody ever who fulfilled that, it was Paul. And Paul actually autobiographically is writing to a community of not Jewish, non-Jewish people. Right? So they're Gentiles who live in Philippi in a colony, a Roman colony. There were other false teachers that came to these folks and said, listen, you've got to be Jewish first. You've got to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Paul calls those people mutilators of the flesh. He calls them dogs. He calls them false teachers. He's pretty insulting towards them. And what he'll do in the passage we're going to look at is he's going to give us his religious credentials that are pretty impressive and then say all of those before God were something that wasn't very pleasant or savory. Now, go, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, the second part of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, in their ability to earn God's approval, I have more reasons. I was circumcised on the eighth day, so his parents were Torah-observant Jews. I'm of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, one of, the, one of the more favored tribes in that day. I was a Hebrew of, a he, of Hebrews. In other words, I was more Jewish than a lot of my Jewish contemporaries. In regard to obeying the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees took the 600 commandments, added 1,500 rules, regulations to them. So he's like upper, upper, upper 1% desiring to be obedient. So in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for my zeal, he says... I was murdering Christians. Do you get more zealous than that? He was imprisoning and overseeing the murder of Christians. And he says, lastly, as for legalistic righteousness, as for external conformity to that list of 2,100 rules, what's he say? Faultless. Faultless. I can't even keep the big 10, let alone all that whole list, right? So Paul says, these are my religious credentials. He's talking to these Jew uh, other Jewish folks that were talking to the non-Jewish folks saying you got to be Jewish. He's like, listen, that's all contractual thinking, guys. If anybody had basis of confidence in their own performance, it was me. I mean, not only did I perform well, but I was born from the right people, from God-fearing parents. I was born into a tribe that had a certain amount of prestige in that day. And then I chose to become a Pharisee. As for my zeal, I was murdering Christians. And if you kept score, I was faultless. Now notice what he says about that whole resume. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, what's your Bible say? Rubbish. Now, close the ears. 
thank you. Well, so obedient. You got to get out of the shirt. Close the ears. Close the ears. This is the big one. Are you ready? Now, if you couldn't hear me, you wouldn't have heard me ask that, okay? All right, cover the ears, seriously. Because the word that's used here that's translated rubbish is the Greek word skubalon, which means dung. It means excrement. It's crap. It's a vulgar Greek word that Paul uses that would have jarred, in the same way it's jarring to us, it would have jarred his first audience. Okay? And it's actually, it's the S word. I mean, if you were going to give the, like, it's that word. And I'm so tempted just to translate it that way, but I'd get in trouble. Now, but that's the word he uses. And so literally, the two images we get of God's view of our feeble attempts to earn His love and favor, right, are two pretty ugly pictures given in response. Would you agree? So I find that really interesting because I think it's just the reverse. I think, look at how hard I'm working. Look at all that I'm doing. Look at everything. And that's all contract language. God looks at that and says, it is absolutely rubbish. Those are filthy rags. We know what they really mean, right? This is absolute crap compared to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. The word knowing there is an intimate covenant word. See, covenants aren't built on law. Covenants are built on love. And so we want to talk about the love that stands behind God's covenant with us. Now, anytime we talk about God's love, I cringe inside for the following reasons. Number one, I'm not a very romantic fellow. So I don't look at the world through these very poetic, romantic, artistic lenses, right? I like Gladiator. I like Braveheart. I like Carnage is kind of my, if you have to... But if, my, if you say to my wife, you know, um, hey, this is like a romantic comedy she's in. For me, that's kiss of death kind of stuff. Now, uh, so that's reason number one when we talk about God's love. I always think it's kind of cliched or I think it's distant or, you know, it's like Hallmark, the Hallmark after school special on God's love or something. But the second reason I, I don't like talking about it is because the word love in English is so flimsy. It's, it's, it, we don't have a better word. So I use the same word to talk about my love of football, my love of ice cream, my love of my wife, and God's love for me. Those are different kinds of love. Would you agree? The Greeks were much more precise. They had, different, they had four different kinds of Greek words for love that had to do with different aspects of love. We talk about falling in love and falling out of love, and we, and, and we just confuse the whole thing. Love in the Bible doesn't mean nice. God, to say that God loves us means He wills our good. He wills our good. Now what I think is good and what He thinks are good, what He thinks is good and what I think are good, two to- totally different definitions of good. Would you agree? Me? Yes. God, what's good for me is, you know, a house that looks like this and, you know, that new Beamer just looks so awesome and how about a couple promotions and here's my good and then God's looking at at like holiness and godliness and righteousness and obedience and I'm going, can't we do both? Can't we do both, God? Wouldn't that be great? Now, what I want to do, if that's what contract language does in God's sight, he literally looks at it and he says, it's rubbish, those are filthy rags. What, What does he want for us instead? 
And it's covenant language. It's language of love. And so we want to look at a kind of love that stands behind the covenant God wants to have with us. Go, if you would, to the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. Now, for the next, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, we're going to be all over the Bible. And I may lose you a little bit. What I want to do, though, is I want to, I, I want to do a little Greek lesson because there's a word that's used that doesn't come across in English that I want us to understand a bit. And then we'll kind of circle back to covenant and contract. All right? So you guys okay so far? Okay, 11 o'clock. Great to see you. Are you guys okay so far? All right. Thank you very, very much. Now, go to John chapter 3, verse 16. My favorite verse because it's the one you put in football stadiums. Right? So I'm in. We all know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, one of the things that always has bugged me is why is love in the past tense in this verse? Why isn't it present tense? In other words, why isn't God so loves the world that He gave His Son? Why is it, why is it past tense? For God so loved, past tense, the world that He gave His one and only Son. I don't know, that just bugged me. Why is it past tense? And as it turns out in Greek, and I know you're fascinated, in Greek, the the way the word love is tensed refers to something that happened in eternity that caused God to act in human history and the effects of that action still continue forward to this day. So you don't get that in English. You get a a, a flimsy word, love, and and in Greek, it's the highest form of love. It's agape love. It's love that's self-sacrificial, love that gives no thought of return. And then it's tensed in Greek in a way that talks about something in the past, in eternity past, compelled God to act, and whatever he did, the effects of which still carry forward to this day. That's a whole lot in one word. So I want to explore the letter D This morning. Why is there a D? Go, if you would, to Jeremiah. This message is brought to you by the letter D. Go to Jeremiah, if you would. Open in the middle of the Bible. You got the book of Psalms. Hang a right. Go to Jeremiah 31. I want to describe this kind of love that the scriptures say that God has for us. Now, I'm going to keep checking in with you, making sure we're okay. All right? So when I say, are we okay? The answer is, even if you're not, that's kind of the answer I'm hoping for. Now, Jeremiah 31, let's go to verse 3. If you have one of these Bibles, it's page 434. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with what? An everlasting love. Now, the word everlasting in Hebrew, I know you're fascinated, is a word that means hidden or concealed. In other words, God is saying, I have loved you with a love that if you were to try to find its origins or its ending, you you couldn't find it because it's obscured in eternity. That's the idea. It's an everlasting love. Meaning, if you were to try to trace out where it began and where it ends, you'll never find it. It's hidden from you. That doesn't mean we can't understand it. It just means that we don't have words big enough to talk about where it comes from. So the best word we have is this word olam, which means everlasting, but there's a secondary meaning, which means it's so big you can't find the beginnings or the endings of it. Go, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 1. 
flip over to the left a little bit. This love that is spoken of is a very, it's not just like, hey, God loves you and has a really nice plan for your life, although that's true. It's a love that is um, not just this nice sentimentality, but it's a love that actually knows the beloved. It's a love that really knows us. So, uh, Jeremiah, this is the same guy who wrote Jeremiah 31, obviously. And in verse 1, um, chapter, uh, no, 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 chapter 1, verse 4, excuse me. Chapter 1, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now imagine hearing that from God. Do you think the prophet went through life with a sense of, boy, I can really mess this up? You think the prophet went around with that sense? You think? Okay, there's a yes, and I got some no's. The yes is partially right, but the no is more right. <sighs> Sorry. If you were chosen before you were even born, that meant you did nothing to earn that chosenness. Would you agree? So the sense that the, that the prophet walked along with, and, and, and in the book of Jeremiah is interesting because he does wrestle with this a lot, but he begins the whole book by saying, listen, before I was even formed, you knew me, you chose me, and you appointed me. Go, if you would, to Psalm. Uh, let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 139, real quick. Go to the right. When we talk about God's love, we're not just talking about some benign affection. We're talking about a very particular kind of love he has for us. Did I say go to the right? I might go to the left. Go to the left. Sorry. All of a sudden, I'm an Amos going, hold on. Psalm 139. David is writing. Notice what he says. He says a very similar thing to Jeremiah 1. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Go from here to the book of Titus. In the New Testament, Paul's letters are arranged from longest to shortest. And towards the end, there are five T's in a row. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and then Titus. We're speaking about contract versus covenant. A contract is an obligation that's based on law. It says, I do this, so I'm entitled to that. God operates differently. He gives us two pictures of that sort of approach, and they're not very pleasant. Instead, he offers from the perspective of covenant, a pledging of God to us, to his people, that's based on agape love. Agape love is mentioned in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, but it's tensed in a way to capture this is not the kind of love we're used to. There's something that happened in eternity past that caused God to act. And so when you start exploring, well, what's that kind of love look like? Well, in Jeremiah, it's everlasting love. You can't, you can't find its beginnings or its endings. And it's not just this general like, hey, God's a fan of human beings. No, you have two instances at least 
in the Old Testament where God knows the specifics about me and loves me instead. Before I was even formed, before I was made, he was expressing this love to me. Titus captures the same idea. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie, promised before what? The beginning of time. In other words, this hope of eternal life, this promise of Jesus, was something that was an extension of His love that He planned on before the beginning of time. And isn't that an interesting phrase? Well, how else would you say before the beginning of time? Before is a time word, right? And yet, that's the best we can do. So before time began, before there was no before or after, or anything. God had set this promise out before us. Flip to the left and go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Is this painful? Yes. But it's really good news. Ephesians, chapter 1. Go, if you would, to verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before what? The creation of the world. To be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. Don't get hung up on the big scary predestined word. You can ask Kenton about that next week. Instead, I want you to get hung up on the phrase in love before the beginning of time or before the creation of the world. See, when the Bible talks about God's love of human beings, it has to use language that almost blows our minds. It has to say things like, okay, God loved the world, and the way they tense it is that it was out somewhere in eternity, and if you were trying to find where it began, you couldn't. And if you tried to find where it ended, you couldn't. But it caused him to act, to do something. And whatever he did still is effectual today. So the images are things like, well, yeah, God chose me. He appointed me. He knew me. He formed me. All of this. He promised me. All of this stuff happened before the creation of the world and before time began. Now, the reason this is so important you understand this little nuanced point is that is it possible to do anything to lose God's love? The answer is no. Why? Because you did nothing to get it. You weren't even a thing before you were loved, is the point. See, the contract we want to have, if I do this, then God approves. If I do this, then God loves me. If I do this, God blesses me. The Bible flips it around completely. No, you are loved. You are approved of. In Christ, everything's been reconciled. And so when you step under His sacrifice, you put faith and trust in Him, Now you're declared righteous. You don't have to earn your way to righteousness. Now you are righteousness and you learn to live up to it. So instead of walking around hoping God approves, hoping God loves, the Bible just starts from the reverse perspective and says, hey, just so we're clear, everything you were going to do was known ahead of time and already factored into God's love of you. Just so we're clear. Before there was time, And before the creation of the world, you were loved. Now, again, I hear that as like a guy who loves carnage. And I'm like, okay, it sits up here. 
Like, I don't get what that means. Go, if you would, to the book of Romans. Flip over to the left more. Go to Romans chapter 5. So this love that began in eternity, that carries forward into eternity, compelled God to act, and this is what He did. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. How are we doing? You guys okay? Is this really making sense a little bit? Alright, well, kind of. We were good, and then it was, yeah, it's kind of making sense. We're going to land the plane here in about five minutes. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still what? Powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were church-going, Christ died for us. While we had it together, Christ died for us. Just when we had our habits taken care of. No, what's it say? While we were sinners. Now, doesn't the church reverse this sometimes? You've got to get your act together. You've got to get cleaned up. You've got to get your addictions taken care of. You've got to deal with your lust issue or your anger problem. You've got to get your finances straightened out. You've got to get your theology perfectly lined up. Then you can be a part. But what does God say? Just the reverse. This love was expressed concretely. It doesn't just sit outside of eternity, but it compelled him to act, and he acted before we did anything religious. See, there can be no contract. Because the contract assumes God's waiting for me to do something before he responds. The Bible flips it and says, no, no, no. Before you did a thing that was good, before you did anything religious, before you had any proper belief, before you lived in a way that was healthy and whole, before you did anything, He demonstrated love towards you. End of story. And so it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, the grace of God has already been extended to you. And His love has been demonstrated. And the fact that we make people jump through hoops to come to that, I mean, it's just so absurd That's why God looks at that and says, it's crap, it's filthy, this has no place in my kingdom. Because before you were born, I loved you. Before anything was created, I loved you. Before there was a thing, I chose and adopted and appointed and all this crazy stuff. And you just go, well, no wonder it says we can't lose it. We didn't do anything to get it. And when you and I wake up, to this and by faith receive it and step underneath it the scriptures say you now enter into a covenant with God where he's pledged himself to you for richer or poorer in sickness and in health for better and worse right Jesus is one of Jesus's last phrases was I will never leave you or forsake you that's covenant language so when we announce to the world that God's done the work. It should be celebrated as good news. But so often we flip it around and make it contractual, and that's why everyone receives it as judgment and intolerance and exclusivity. It's just the reverse. Go, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. A very familiar verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. You know this one if you've been around church. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see why now Paul can say that? So let's go through the list. I'm convinced that neither death nor life. All right, so God knew the number of our days before we even had them. Right? Death and life are in time. God's outside of time. His love extends outside of time. Of course, He loves us before there was even life. Neither angels nor demons. Those are created things. Right? He loved us before there was anything created. The present or the future? What are those things? Those are time words. God's love for us transcends time. Nor any powers or height or depth or anything else. I mean, Paul just says this as a very straightforward implication of the radical nature of God's love. The reason Jesus will say God so loved the world is because this love began in eternity, moved God to act in the sending of His Son, and Jesus, while we were still ungodly and powerless, died so that you and I now by faith can have life. We can now live up under that love. Now, are you with me so far on this much? A couple more passages. Go if you would to Colossians. Once you step up and in under this love, and by the way, God's love is different from human love. Human love is usually human love that comes after somebody's lovable. Right? So human love and human acceptance is like an after love. So I love you if you're lovable. I love you if you perform well. I love you if you're beautiful. I love it's conditional. Whereas God's love is like none of that stuff matters. You didn't have anything to do with it. You can't lose it because you didn't do anything to get it. That's the idea. And that same love compelled the sending of Jesus. And when you step up under that sacrifice, by faith receiving it, you are now, Paul says, in Christ. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Paul's favorite way of describing us is with a short phrase called in Christ. He uses it 164 times in his writings. Go uh, to verse 3. Colossians 3.3. 3. For you died, and your life is now what? Hidden with Christ in God. Now, I know for a fact you don't appreciate how significant that is because some of you look bored. (laughs) If we actually understood this, if we actually understood this, it would just change everything. So I've, I've asked Darth Vader to help me this morning. Ooh, now. Here's Darth Vader. Here's a Tupperware dish. With them separated, is it possible to see the Tupperware dish and not see Darth Vader? Yes. Is it possible to see the Tupperware dish and not see Darth Vader? Yes. Is it possible to see Darth Vader and not the Tupperware dish? Yes. Now, according to the Scripture, right, this is a horrible visual. (laughs) It really is, but you know, it's the best I got. All right, according to the scripture, if Darth were real, some of the kids are going, what? He's not? Right? So the picture we're given of those uh, who come to faith in Christ is they are in Christ. They have, their life is now hidden with Christ in God. The same hiding that means you can't find the origin or the ending of God's love now applies to you and your relationship to Christ. Is it possible now 
to look at Darth Vader and not see the Tupperware? No. And is it possible to look at the Tupperware and not see Darth Vader? You see them both, right, at the same time. That literally is what Paul's arguing. You've disappeared into Jesus so that God cannot see you without seeing Jesus and God cannot see Jesus without seeing you. Now, that's not hallmark, like, cliched religiosity. That is the most profound theology, and here's the reason. Are you ready? This is the point. When you understand that kind of covenant love, your job then, for the rest of your Christian life, is to live out what is already true of you. In other words, you're declared righteous, not because you've earned it, but because you're in Christ. So what you do now is learn to be what you already are. Think about uh, marriage. I got married at 29, clueless. I mean, I know that's shocking. Clueless. I had 29 years of single habits and thinking kind of under my belt. I married this wonderful woman, Justina. You know what the preacher says? I pronounce you husband and wife. So I woke up that morning as a single man. I went to bed that night as a married man. I won't say anything. (laughs) Do I know what it means to be married? Nope. But the nature of my covenant relationship with her means that I now learn to be a husband by already being one. I've been declared a husband and the rest of my married life is living up to what's already true of me. See, the contract says, no, 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 you've got to keep earning, striving, performing. God says, no, 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 my love is the kind of love that so transcends your meager 70 or 80 years here that my writers can't even have language big enough. They don't have language big enough to describe this. And instead, what I'm asking you to do is trust this. Not your own attempts. Trust this. And you know what? I know you're not going to believe it. So you're going to have it, and my invitation to you is now live it. So Paul will say in Ephesians, brothers and sisters, let us live up to the calling which we've already received. In other words, how would you live differently if you knew this was already yours? Now, some will say, oh, yeah, but then you can just kind of do whatever you want and blah, 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 blah. That's the same accusation people made of Jesus and his scandalous grace. There will be some who will try to abuse this setup. Right? I've tried. Well, if I'm already forgiven for everything I'll ever do, great. And all that does is reveal what's already in our hearts. It doesn't matter if we're pretending to be religious now or not. If you really understand this, God looks at the contract way of thinking and goes, it's rubbish, it's garbage. Why would you do that? Look at what I've given you. I mean, think about, all right, parents. Kid number one shows up. You went to the hospital that morning as a couple and you come home as a family. So I'm 32. Here's my first child. I don't have the foggiest idea what I'm doing. I know I have a rough idea where diapers are supposed to go. I know which end go, the food's supposed to go into. That's all I got. Am I a father? Yes. Do I have any idea what it means? No. 
Can I lose my fatherness? No. So the rest of my parenting life is spent learning to be what I already am. And this is good news, brothers and sisters. There are some of you who have lived the rut. Well, I screwed up last night, so here I am, God, feeling guilty. Or I did great this week, so here I am feeling stoked. Oh, I didn't have a quiet time this morning, so I'm going to have a bad day. Or I had a quiet time this morning, so today's going to be great. See, God just blows all of that up. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. The love I have for you is specific to you. Specific to you. I know everything about you before you were even made. Secondly, it's the kind of love you can't find if you go looking for its beginning or ending. And thirdly, it caused me to act on your behalf so that you now stand in Christ and don't have a part of the bargain you have to keep. Do we obey? Do we seek to be righteous? Do we do good? Absolutely. But it's because we're in Christ, not to be in Christ. And that difference makes all the difference in the world between gospel and religion. Religion will tell you, here's what you must do. Gospel tells you, here's what God has done. The only doing that you have comes after you've received the gift. And even then, it's a doing that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You're going to mess it up. My spirit is in you. You can quench, you can grieve me, you can grow, you can fall. But none of that changes where you are or whose you are. Because that whole deal happened before you were even around. For me, this has changed so much about my Christian life, I can hardly even tell you. It changes the way I pray. I, for years, was convinced that the way I had to pray was kind of I had to be good when I was praying. Theest thou, O holiest thine of thy eternal majesty. And I, and I felt like I always had to put on a show. When I understood this, I began to pray differently. I, I began, and I know this sounds so dumb, but I, get, I began to be honest. It's kind of like, oh, he already knows this. Hmm. So telling him I'm really angry right now, like my wife and I had an argument this morning, our first one in our whole marriage. It was unbelievable. You know we're preaching when the bulbs are popping out. Now, or maybe that was Jesus rebuking that falsehood from my lips. I don't know which, which, which it was. <laughs> Love it. Just cover your heads. Now, my wife, she lost my keys. She did. She was the last one who had them. And so she says, take the van. So I grab her keys to the van. I drive a truck. And, and she says, where are you going? And I say, I'm taking the van. And she says, well, great. And she's mad at me because I'm taking the van. And then I say, but you told me to take the van. It went a little more heated than that. Now, 
I used to operate under the slavery that if I did anything bad for 24 hours before I had to teach the Bible, I was dead meat. And so literally, I'm driving down, and I'm, I'm frustrated at my sweetie bear. I am. I'm like, God, but, but here's where the honesty came in. The honesty came in as I'm just unloading, like, I'm really frustrated. I'm really irritated. Da, 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 da. And you know what God says to me in that moment? It was so classic God. He's like, well, then it's a great thing. It's not up to you, isn't it? Hallelujah. And I called my wife and apologized. It was Jesus coming alongside of me saying, hey, guess what? Regardless of your religious performance, when my people gather, I'll take care of it. Regardless of how you've done today, I mean, do you understand how liberating that is? To actually go through your day believing that that is where you stand with God Almighty. For me, it's changed everything. And we want the same thing for you. So can I be absolutely and absurdly ridiculous for a moment? And you're thinking, you haven't been thus far? (laughs) I believe there are a few of you for whom God has specifically had this message in mind. And what I mean is, it sits up here, but I don't really believe it. And the whole goal of this conversation we've had over the several weeks is for God's people to find freedom in the grace and truth of Jesus. And uh, what I want to do is ask you to do something absurd this morning. I want for some of you Um, to, in a few moments, to indicate to the rest of us that this is something you want to see more and more of in your life. I believe there are a few of us who are exhausted from performing, exhausted from the treadmill, exhausted from having to wonder, did I do enough today? Am I good enough? What about this thing or what about this thing? We believe that the combination of the community of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God transforms hearts. And we believe there are a few of you here um, that we just want to pray over this morning. And so the ridiculous part is this. Even though we're in a room full of people who don't know each other, and even though we're in a movie theater, uh, I want to invite a few of you for whom, um, or, or a few of you, that God is really speaking to, um, just to stand up. And then a few of us are going to just gather around you to pray. And here's what I mean. One of the pictures we get of the church isn't a bunch of strangers watching the paid professionals do the work of ministry. The picture we get of a church is of a family, of ministers who are all empowered by the same spirit, ministering to each other. And sometimes the best way to embody that is to pray for one another right in the middle of church. I know it's shocking. I know it's shocking. Um, But we believe that there are a few of you that need this idea of God's love to begin to percolate down into the depths. By standing up, you're not saying you're a failure, you're miserable, you're not, you're not, we're not going to ask you questions, we're just going to have you stand up, and then people right around you are going to put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. They're not going to pray to fix you, they're not going to pray anything except God bless, I bless what you're doing. Does this make sense? All right, so, who's in? 
If, if, uh, if you could just use prayer this morning, would you just stand up right where you are? I know it's incredibly courageous, but this is kind of what we do. Thank you for being honest, you guys. Thanks for being honest. I know he's got to wait a couple of seconds because people think they can out-awkward me. <laughs> and it's impossible. And all we're going to do, guys, no one's looking at you saying, oh, I can't believe you don't understand God's love. Come on. The rest of us are either in denial or something else. We just want to pray freedom and hope over you guys. Thank you for your boldness and standing up. If you have a pulse and you love Jesus and you have red blood in your veins and are human, you are commissioned to the Mariners Viejo prayer team. What you will do if someone is next to you, now you don't have to do this. If you're uncomfortable with this, just stay, just stay seated. We'll actually have everybody stand so you can just stay standing at that point. But um, if you're comfortable with it, would you gather around these folks that are standing and would you just put a hand on their shoulder and then would you take turns just praying over them? And again, we're not fixing, we're not doing anything except God, would your Holy Spirit reveal your love to break the chains of contract thinking, to break the slavery of religious thinking, to have them taste just the exhilarating freedom of grace over and over and over. Does that make sense, you guys? And for those of you who are standing, I just want you to close your eyes. And I just don't, I won't, I don't want you to worry about what you're thinking or what you're feeling. I just want you to receive because we believe God will guide the prayers that people will pray over you. And that God will speak in some strange way. Do we have to ask God to be working in these people? No. Would you stand up in front of a room full of strangers if he wasn't already working? Right? I mean, the, he's working. And we just want to bless it. All right? So... The rest of you, stand up if you would. Gather around, pick out a couple of people, surround them. Okay? If you stood up to be prayed for, could you raise your hand for a second? I just want to make sure we got everyone covered. Awesome. Now, folks, this almost looks like church. I'm going to pray, and then you pray. All right? And just go as long as you'd like. Pray God's blessing and hope the rest of you, if you're just here standing, we just invite you to enter in and worship, to pray just for this community, to ask God for yourself. God, help me to see more and more of this in my life. So Father, we come before you and we admit right out um, up front, God, that we don't understand this kind of love. We don't get it. It's not love in our world. And God, it's so foreign to us that we need literally a supernatural revelation of this kind of concern and care and affection you have for us so that it's not just religious, it's not just cliche. It's not. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.